Okay. We're going to talk about sukkahs today. Sukkahs is our... I have to do all of sukkahs in one day. I mean, the, the, the class on sukkahs. Okay. Um, I'm going to start by telling you something that says in Kabbalah. Partially because I, I, I like saying things that say it's in Kabbalah because they sound weird. Um, the rule, just before we get started, the rule with Kabbalah is that everything in Kabbalah means something. So that means sentences that make no sense in normal language make perfect sense in Kabbalah, if you know what they mean, things mean in Kabbalah. Okay. Can you just explain what Kabbalah is? No. It's a part of Torah where things mean other things than what they normally mean. We're going to leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> so in Kabbalah it says that the, the cloud of the smoke of the incense, the Anan HaKateris in Hebrew, the cloud of the incense from Yom Kippur, turns into the Schach, which is the vegetation we use to cover our sukkah, which makes no sense if you think about that, like in the literal meaning of those words, right? The Schach, you know what I'm yeah, that's made out of the smoke from the incense in the temple. Which requires explanation what that means, right? Okay. Um, so that's what the class is going to be about, broadly speaking. Um, so I have to do a little brief um, explanation of the incense in the temple on Yom Kippur. And then we can move on to Sukkot. Okay. One of the things that the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, would do on Yom Kippur is he would enter the Holy of Holies, as I mentioned previously, and he would burn incense there and fill up the whole room with smoke produced by the incense. And in that smoke is, so to speak, the place of God's forgiveness. In other words, God's forgiveness of the Jewish people occurs in that smoke. Now... There are many reasons why we're going to focus on one, which is that smoke is something that's just dark. In other words, we often associate godliness with light, yes? Like the sun shines light, right? Or a candle, right? Smoke is something that darkens, right? For instance, if you ever burned challah inside the house, right? What happens? Everything's a little hazy because the smoke, if the smoke gets thick enough, you even can't see through things. So the idea is that the thickness of the smoke, which blocks vision, that somehow represents God's forgiveness, so we have to understand what exactly is the connection between darkness and God's forgiveness of us. By the way, you will also note that the sukkah, which we dwell in, has schach, and the primary purpose of the schach is to provide shade, to block out the sunlight. In fact, according to Jewish law, if a sukkah does not have enough schach to block out the majority of the sunlight coming through the roof, it is not a kosher, not a valid sukkah. Also, when you put the schach up, you have to have it, put it up there to provide shade. If you're not actually intending for it to provide shade, it just happens to be there already for other reasons, it doesn't count. So there's a theme here, we're saying darkness, right? The darkness of the cloud of incense, the darkness of the schach. It's a very dark time. Good? Okay. Now, we're going to come back to that. So keep that, that you know, if you're in your notes, like you make space to come back to that. Like, why, why do you say that the darkness of the smoke represents God's forgiveness? Because that's what it says in Kabbalah. Okay. I'm just telling you that. Yeah. Okay. Um. I'll explain how 
what why it represents it, but like the reason I'm saying is because people who have like prophetic knowledge told me, not directly through their writings, but you know, it's effectively the same thing. I'm not going to go into all the laws of sukkah. The way it's determined is by the, sh- the sunlight coming through the roof area. Not, we don't consider what the walls do. I'm not going to go into all the details, but that's... The primary aspect of the sukkah is the schach. There needs to be a certain amount of walls there, so it's considered to be like an enclosed space, but the actual primary element is the shade provided by the schach. How that's calculated, because the sun's not always directly overhead, is a discussion for a different time. Okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about a more general question first. Um, We often speak in the language of going up and coming down. We talk about a relationship with God. We speak about like we want to go, you want to get to a higher level, want to bring God down into the world, right? Things like that, right? We have this kind of vertical imagery. Yes? So I'm... Have you ever thought about like what that actually means? Like, why? Wh- wh- what does it mean that God is up and we are down? And actually, what would be the difference between going up to God or bringing God down to you? Like, seemingly, it's the same thing, right? There's that notion of distance and closeness makes some kind of intuitive sense, right? You can be close to somebody, you can be far away from someone. Physically, you can be close and far away. Also, emotionally, you can be sitting right next to somebody and feel distance between you, right? But what does it mean, like, you go up to them or they go down to you? I mean, physically, if you're on the top of the mountain or the bottom of the mountain, I understand that. But, like, in terms of a relationship, what does it mean to go up versus to go down? Okay. So, that's what I want to actually talk about first. And when we talk about that, then we'll understand this thing about the sukkah. And um, then we'll get to the hard part about celebrating sukkahs according to chassidus. Because we can't leave anything with, you know, light and fluffy and easy, God forbid. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to tell you a short little incident that occurred many, many years ago. There was a famous, um, don't ask any questions. I'm going to ask the questions about it, okay? Just listen. There was a famous mashpia, Hasidic mentor. His name was Rabbi Shlomo Chaim Kesselman. He was um, considered one of the great educators of translating the practical aspects of Hasidus as a spiritual path for students from a young age and, and, and really training people to really apply the Chabad teachings in a, in, a, in a genuine way. He was from Russia. He eventually made it to the United States and it's made it to Israel. Um, and one time he was at a Fabreng in a Hasidic gathering and there was somebody who was not the most um, you know, spiritually minded. Um, a guy, just a you know, regular religious Jew happened to be there. And he said, he criticized him. He said, you just do what you like. Same way I do what I like. I enjoy, you know, food and hanging out and you enjoy prayer. So you do what you enjoy and I do what I enjoy. We're not any different. You're not superior to me in any way. Which is a reasonable criticism, yes? Okay. So I want you all to stop and think for a moment about if you were Shlomo Chaim Kesselman, how would you respond? How would you point out that Really, what you're doing is far nobler than what he's doing. Okay? Everyone, don't, don't say any suggestions. Just think in your head. We're going to see who, who got the right answer. Okay, what did he actually say? He said, you're right. But what we enjoy is very different. 
Was that the answer anyone thought of in their head? I was just going to say it's just your perspective. Like, it depends on each person. Like That's not the same answer. No? No. It's not the same answer. Did anyone have the answer that you're right, but what we enjoy is different? Yeah. But that was the question. That was what he was telling you. I That's true. Me. That's true. Did anyone understand the answer? Actually, let's start there. Did anyone understand the answer? Is he saying that what's different is in one's about to show and one's not? But why don't you just say that? What's up? You can just say that. I just said like a nicer way of like, yeah, get your head out of the gutter. I mean, get your head out of the gutter is definitely implied by what he's saying, but that is not the answer to the question. That you're doing the same thing I do. You do what you enjoy, and I do what I enjoy. You enjoy prayer, and I enjoy eating and drinking. So what's the difference? You train yourself to So the difference is the difference. Prayer is higher than eating and drinking because it brings you, like... Closer to God? So why don't you say, what I'm doing brings me closer to God? No, but it's, it's for, for, like, for some people, it is qualitatively, like, better. And for some people, it's, like, the same thing. Like, you know, the same he's higher because he... He didn't say he was higher. Right. He said, but in the end, he's higher because he enjoys those things. He chose to enjoy them. And that makes him higher. Why? Maybe he chose not to argue. I don't think it's not for me to judge. No, no, we're into judging. This is religion. We judge. We can have a class and have questions and answers. Judging is fine. Like everything within its limits, within its boundaries. He's called the God of judgment. He gives us a commandment to do a lot of judging. Judging is fine. We're into so judging. But it doesn't make him judging. superior. He, no, he's, he, he was saying he's superior. He disagrees with him. He is? I mean, okay. Is this hard to figure out? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to tell you another story. Okay. <laughs> what? There was a great mashpia of an earlier generation named, named Shmuel Greinem. Shmuel Greinem Esterman. When the original Chabad Yeshiva was founded, he was selected by the fifth Chabad Rebbe to be one of two people to mentor the Yeshiva students, the Bacham, in the ways of Hasidic practice and teaching. So, a pretty special person. He had a mentor whose name slips my mind at the moment, who lived in a different city. And in that city, there was a bris, circumcision, which Hasidim make a Ferbengen. And so he wanted to go to the Ferbengen because he knew his mentor was bringing and speaking he wanted to do. The problem was that at this point in his life, he made a living by being um, a school teacher. Now, a school teacher in the shtetl meant that you had kids come to your house and they sat in a room. That's why it became known as a cheder, literally your room. And you were paid by their fathers and you taught them. And if you didn't teach them that day, you weren't paid that day. That's how it worked. And if you had five kids, you got paid for five kids. If you had six kids, you got paid for six kids. You can understand that this was not a great way to become wealthy, right? <laughs> so the Malamdim, were these teachers were always known to be very poor. And if he missed a day's of work, I mean, that really cuts into the family budget. But he really wanted to go. So he decided to take the day off, and he went. And at the Fabring, his mentor tells him, turns to him and says, I want to tell you a story. So he gets very excited. A story is a classic way of giving deep Hasidic teachings. He prepares himself to hear the teaching, to hear the story, absorb it. And then his teacher looks at the mentor, looks at him again and says... No, I think I'll tell you tomorrow. And he says, but tomorrow I won't be here. He says, okay, then I won't tell you. <laughs> says, but, but, but I can't tell Miss Work. He says, look, you want to hear the teaching, stay. You don't want to hear the teaching, don't stay. It's up to you, but I have the story, the thing I want to tell you. I don't, I don't, I don't want to tell you today, I'll tell you tomorrow. I'll tell you the story tomorrow. 
So he wrestled with someone, decided that it was worth staying, and he did not go back home. And he missed two days of work. So the next day comes, and they're sitting around, and it was a small, whatever, gathering, whatever it is. And uh, he's waiting for to hear the story. And eventually his mentor turns to him and says, I decided not to tell you. I decided not to tell you. And Shmuel Grainim said that he learned more from that not being told than he did from all the things that his Mishpia's mentor ever told him. <laughs> now, what did he learn? And why was that more than all the other teachings he learned? Can you explain that to me? What do these two stories have in common? The one about Shlomo Chaim Kesem and the one about Shmuel Grainim, what do they have in common? They don't get mad at Shmuel. <laughs> no, one Shlomo, one Shmuel. It's different names. What? They don't get it. Okay, that is a common number that I was not what I was thinking about. It's two people that can't relate. Like they try to, and then they just can't seem to be. No, honest. he doesn't say he can't. Well, second one, he says, I don't want to. I'm not, I decided not to. He didn't say I can't. He said, I decided not to give it to share, tell you this story. Let me ask you a question. What's the likelihood that you're going to go and say, I learned this amazing thing, this amazing story, the Shomchem Kesselman? <laughs> like, are you going to like go over and like, tell that to people? Do you have any no. idea what that story is about? No. The second story, do you have any idea what that no. was about? No. Okay, that's what they have in common. You have no idea what they're about. Do you know why you have no idea what they're about? They don't make sense. They, they do make sense. They make a lot of sense. They make a lot of sense. That's right. In order to appreciate what Shlomo Chaim Kesselman meant, to really understand what he meant, that what you enjoy and I enjoy are not the same thing, what he meant by that, you would have to be, you'd have to be like him. Because what he's saying is, we're not on the same level. But to appreciate how what I enjoy, what you enjoy are not the same thing, to really appreciate the difference, you have to enjoy the things I enjoy. But if, but if it's not the words that I'm saying that makes the difference. And uh, you would have to, in other words, there are things that you have to be experiencing life in a certain way in order to, for them to make sense to you. By the way, you can explain things that don't make sense to you. You can say things and it sounds coherent, but it doesn't, like if you actually stop, it doesn't really make sense. I'll give you an extreme example, okay? This is not the thing that the Chassidus talks a lot about, but it's still part of Judaism, and I'm sure that like somebody's gonna get upset, but I'll tell you anyway. Um, there's this thing called the Gehenim, which is where people are punished in the afterlife for their sins. Okay, um, how painful is Gehenim? Isn't it like 60 times the fire on earth or something? It's there, there is that. There's another teaching, which is the one I like to use. It's seven, one hour of Gehenna is equivalent to 70 years worth of Job's suffering. So you can read the book of Job, which is a very painful book about someone who suffers a lot. He loses everything, his health, his children. Eov in Hebrew. 70 years worth of that is one hour. The average person spends how long in Gehenna? No, that's, that's not like, 12, 12 months is for like real serious sinners. Mm. Three to four. Yeah, there was a very wicked man named Elisha ben Avua, Elisha the son of Avua, and he was so wicked that um, he originally wasn't even let into Ge- Gehenna because the rule is that if you go into Gehenna, eventually you get out. That's the rule. It's not like permanent damnation. It's a cleansing process. So eventually you get out, your soul is clean. And God was so angry with him, he didn't want to let him in. But eventually he let him in, which is a story in of itself. And he was there for something around the order of 150 years, approximately, give or take. I thought it was 12 months max. 
No, 12 is max if you're an average wicked person. What? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, do you know why? Yeah, so now let's go back. Why, why did God let him in? Because his friend... Re- yeah. Your average person, your average wicked person, and there's like, you know, seriously, historically wicked people. So, you know, some people are still there. From the, you can mention some names, but we won't talk about them. Um, so he had, a, he had a disciple, Rabbi Meir, and Rabbi Meir prayed that God should accept him and dig ahead of him to cleanse his soul. He had a disciple named Rabbi Meir, who stayed very righteous, and he prayed that... that his teacher's soul should be accepted and to get him and be cleansed. And he said better for him to be, go through the punishments in the afterlife and eventually go into the world to come and to experience the bliss of the soul after it's been cleansed and is able to um, be in God's presence. Now, let me ask you a question. Obviously, a little bit of pain is worth it if you're going to have a lot of pleasure afterwards, right? Can you fathom any kind of pleasure that makes 150 years worth of that suffering no. worth it? No. So no matter how much I explain it, it doesn't ever really make sense, right? You would have to like experience life in a totally different way in order for that to begin to make sense, right? At a certain point, things go outside of our ability to resonate with us, to process. Okay. If in order to be together with someone else, you need to do that kind of work, to be on a different place, on a different level, in order to be with them, then that means going up. So now, if you were to really try to figure out what, what Shalmachayim Kesselman meant, like really get there, you would be doing what? Going up. But now, how would you have to do that? You'd have to start like learning how to enjoy praying and learn to not enjoy eating, right? Now, how do you begin to do that, right? It's a process of self-refinement, right? Of divesting yourself of how you normally live your life. Okay? That's what it means by going up. What is the day when we go to the highest place? Not the place that we're necessarily closest to God. The day we go to the highest place. The day where we do the most to divest ourselves of anything of what it means to be a human being. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. So on Yom Kippur, Hashem shows us how much He loves us, how much He forgives us, and everything we discussed previously, right? What's the condition? On a spiritual level. We have, right. we have to go up. You have to divest yourself of your humanity in order to be on that place. If you want to sense God's unconditional forgiveness because there's a point at which we have no separation, that God wants to be with us under all conditions no matter what, etc., 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 right? And then heal yourself and refine your, fix your flaws as we discussed in that previous class of Yom Kippur. You want to be in that place? On a basic level, you have to like not eat. But on a deeper level, what do you have to do? To leave your life behind. So why don't we all just like go up to heaven and come back down? That's what you're supposed to do. If you are a spiritual master, you know, as you have mastery over yourself, what do you do on Yom Kippur? You, you bring yourself to as least a state of attachment to your body as possible, yeah. In fact, there's a there's a Hasidic teaching that there's a verse that, that um, in Psalms which says lachiyosim berav that Hashem gives us life in hunger, which the simple meaning is that even when there was famine, He gave us food to eat. But in Hasidus, what it says is that the very fact that we are hungry gives us life. The very fact that we our bodies are deprived gives us the ability to be in touch with something much deeper. And this is hard. 
For, yeah, for me, it just makes me hungry. I want to go to sleep, but that's just me, right? Not all of us are spiritual masters. I see you in just one second. The, in other words, this, I'm not, now I'm not talking about in the halacha practice, but the spiritual idea of Yom Kippur is that the soul is getting to a place of, of, of intimacy with Hashem and sensing that unconditional forgiveness, but there's a huge cost to that. And what's that cost? Your humanity. You're not really a person on Yom Kippur. Can you explain that? Have you ever seen what Yom Kippur looks like? What do you do on Yom Kippur? just like rest. No, that's if you, you rest because you have a hard time fasting like I do, but like what you're supposed to do on Yom Kippur, ideally. Pray. You're supposed to be, yeah, in a state of prayer all day long. In fact, normally we have, we have morning prayers and afternoon prayers and the end of the prayers we say this prayer called Elena, which is the end prayer. On Yom Kippur, we only say Elena once during the day because the idea is that really, like there's a little bit of break because people need a break, but like really, it's like one long thing. It's just, um, Many great, great people would just, just stand in states of prayer the whole day. Literally stand. Okay. And the point is not to imitate other people. But Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur involves removing yourself. It's like Shabbos, we move ourselves from weekday activities. Yom Kippur is kind of like removing, removing yourself from your humanity. Just to be in touch with just that you're a soul from that place and that Hashem just wants to be with you no matter what and from that place you can heal yourself and blah, 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 all those wonderful things. But there's a cost. So you're very close to Hashem, but you're not really in the world. Like, and halakhically, again, you're not even allowed to eat or drink or take a bath or a bunch of other stuff. Now, I need a volunteer who A, is willing to be spoken about publicly and B, is only here for a short period of time, not like a whole semester. Do we have, do we have a volunteer? I know, it's very silly. If we don't have one, then what does it work so? What? You're leaving next week, but how long were you here for? Like, three weeks. Three weeks, okay, fine. Okay. Why did you come just for three weeks? Well, you were here That doesn't matter. I get it. If you came just for three weeks, this will work, okay. I wanted to have better high holidays than I've had in previous years, so I wanted to come and learn. Why didn't you want to stay for a whole semester? Because I only have seven. Everyone's already asked me this already. Okay. Why do you only have so much time? Because Michelle only gave me so many years. <laughs> no, um... <laughs> I don't know, but thank you. That's not what you meant. Why do I only have so much time? Because mm-hmm. I have to support myself. I need to go back to work. Like, I've got, like, real life to go back to. Mm-hmm. I can't stay here forever. It's not uh, okay. sustainable okay. life. Okay, now keep that in your mind, okay? Everyone keep that in your mind. Okay. If I were to tell you what is harder, to go up, right, like Yom Kippur, or the alternative is coming down. Mm-hmm. Now, what does coming down mean? We haven't talked about coming down yet, have we? No, 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 don't, don't, no, no, no. You, you already know that I have, get aversions when people start using slogans and, and things like that. It just uh, it covers over ignorance. How to apply what you... No, no, no. How to apply is the safe route. That's the avoid way to avoid it. Reality? No. Bringing something down means you have the same level of intimate intensity, but without all of the divesting of everything. So now let's imagine, right, that instead, that when you leave my note after however long it is, another, what, week? 
that my note comes with you. And I don't mean the way that like Rebetzin Gestetner says it should come with you. I mean like it really comes with you. Like, like you get a call like, why weren't you in Chassidus in the morning? And like there were classes all day. Why weren't you attending? And why aren't you totally absorbed in your learning? That that goes back with you back to your real life. Would you be able to handle that? No, I'd have serious FOMO. <laughs> you know what's nice about going up, about ascent, about um, that kind of thing? There's an element of temporariness. Yeah, Shabbos. I, 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 like Shabbos is nice. Like I take a break and connect to family, God, spirituality, blah, 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 blah. But you know, it's, it's one day, right? They can get back to other stuff afterwards. Right? A lot of things that we like to have in moderation. in moderation. And we can make time for that. And we can even pay huge costs for that. But in the back of our mind, there's like, this will be over. And then we can get back to real life. We had Rosh Hashanah. I don't know about your Rosh Hashanah, but do you have that feeling at the end of Rosh Hashanah, like, Rosh Hashanah's over, like, you're like, I need a break. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Imagine Rosh Hashanah came and said, I'm going to follow you home. (laughs) (laughs) You're going home now. I'm coming too. So guess what happens after Yom Kippur? God's like, we had this intimate moment. I'm going back with you. (laughs) Not, I'm going to, let's apply, you know, learn a lesson and apply. No, no, no. That same closeness, that same intimacy, that same, I want to be with you no matter what, that every little thing you do, like that same thing of Yom Kippur, God's like, okay, now I'm, I, I'm going to follow you home with that same intensity. But we're not on that same level that we were at on Yom Kippur, so how can he... Like, so instead of us going up to him, he comes? Down us. Yes. Now, which is easier to handle? Probably coming down. Going up is much easier to handle because coming when he comes down, that's overwhelming. Why? Because... Every little thing. He's like, I, we had this moment. We had this sense of intimacy. We were like one. I want to be with you no matter what. You're tying your shoes. I need to be part of your tying your shoes. You're eating. I want to be part of your eating. You're having thoughts. I want to think thoughts with you. You're looking at stuff. I want to look together with you from within your eyes. You're doing stuff with your hands. I want to be in your hands. You're like literally in and with you in every little detail of your life. Overwhelming, yes? And that's, every day, that's every day versus one day of your... Yeah, and it's like, it's not like God's planning on end. It's not like saying for today. He's like, forever. Until next Rosh Hashanah, he's not traced into it anymore. <laughs> but until next Rosh Hashanah. It's intense, yeah? Yeah. Can you handle that? Then he stays no. with us for even an extra day. We'll get to that next tomorrow. Uh-huh. What? Okay. Yeah. I know what you're referring to. We can get to that tomorrow. Okay. So, um, you, you see why this could be hard to handle? Okay. Very clingy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So darkness represents something which is not revealed. There's different ways of speaking about when things are not revealed. One way something's not revealed is because you kind of have to be there to get it, right? Like the stories I told you about those great Hasidic mentors. You have to really be there to get it. Uh, I have a friend who, who, he did not grow up in Chabad and he, he got... Like, whatever, he hung around. One of the things that really shifted his interest in being part of Chabad was there was a chassid named um, Motel Kozliner. 
Montagu's Lunar was born in Russia. He, is, he, he got out in the 1970s. And he, 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 at one point he came to where this person lived and he was raising money and he was for banging and he used to tell stories. And they, my, my friend at this point, he was a, he was a Shiva Bachar. He was like maybe 19 years old, 17 years old, 20 years old, something in that range. I don't know exactly. And he came to this for banging. like he had friends drag him along. And Montagu's Lunar is in Yiddish and he, he would tell stories. So one of the stories, the story was there once was a kid who went to the store with money that his mother gave him to buy some food for the house, to buy a few pieces of some bread, some eggs, whatever it is. And he gets to the store, he gets the pay, and he sticks his hand in his pocket, and the money's not there. And he sticks and sticks and searches and searches and searches and searches and searches, 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 and he finally says, Ah! I found it! And the storekeeper says, The money? He says, No! The hole! <laughs> and then after he'd finished the story, he'd say, in Yiddish, Das is minor, this belongs to me. And my friend says it was the first time in his life he sat in a place where he realized he had no idea what was going on. <laughs> He's like, there's something deeply true about this and I have no clue what this is. That's called darkness. It's not being hidden from you. Okay, now, you can, you can get it by being there, but then you're part of the darkness. Or it can be, quote, revealed to you, but then you don't fully get it. Okay, so... In Yom Kippur, we go up to that place of darkness, that place that's not fully revealed, and Hashem and us are one. It's all wonderful. Yeah, okay. What happens in Yom Kippur? Hashem, quote, reveals that dark place. But when He reveals the dark place, it, doesn't, it still remains dark. It still remains something that you don't really get. And you don't get it in, in several ways. Number one, can you really fathom, as we say, can you really fathom somebody that would be that obsessed with you? I mean, honestly, do you know yourself? You're not that great. Yeah, I mean, not you individually. None of us are. Can you imagine somebody who's that obsessed with you? They want to be with you in literally every aspect of your life. And I mean literally. They want to be chewing the food along with you. Like, can you, can, does that fathom why anybody would care that much about you? Okay, so like even that, this is already weird, yeah? Then there's like the emotional thing. Like, let's say you can accept that that's the fact. Like, that's extremely overwhelming, right? Right? This doesn't really sit well with us. Right? See, it's nice. God wants to be with you in everything you do. Sounds nice until you like flesh it out what that means. Because it's something that you still don't really, you don't really understand. It doesn't really make sense to you. It's not even something that you're comfortable with. And that's the schach. The schach is Hashem saying that forgiveness, that joy I have of being with you, it's not staying up here on Yom Kippur. It's following you home. Okay. And, and um, there's an idea that, 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 that the, the sukkah is kind of, that, 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 that when you love someone, right, and you hug them, where do you put your arms? Around their back. Around their back. And you know, when someone, your arms around someone's back, you know what they can't do? They can't walk away. <laughs> <laughs> That's sukkahs. God's like, I have you. I'm, you're not leaving me. I'm going with you no matter what. <laughs> All right, now you've been waiting for a patient, you can ask your question. I, I, I've made my point, I think. It seems like... It seems like two things you said. Leave your life behind. It seems like you said two things at the beginning. Leave your life behind and in the darkness. So when you leave your life behind up and then you're also leaving it down no no down you're not leaving your life behind the opposite is happening 
God is obsessively coming into every aspect of but, your but, life. But, but, but that's no, dark for a different reason. It's but dark. That's what I'm saying. There, there's a darkness when God comes into your life because if God is involved in every step of your life, there is a surrender that happens where then you are in the darkness because then God starts to want to co-create with you your choices. No. No, no, we're not, we're not. No, no, we're not talking. We're not there yet. That's like a okay. later stage. We're just talking about the fact that He just like wants to do stuff with you, okay. so that. Like I said, when you're, when you're looking at things, he's looking at them with you, through your eyes. And when you're hearing things, he's hearing them with you through your ears. And it's really important to him because he wants to be close to you in every possible way. And when you're putting on your shoes, he wants to be putting on your shoes with you. So what's the darkness down here? The darkness down here is, do you really understand why God would want that? No. Does that really make sense? Yeah. Does that make sense to you? Does that make Yeah, but like, really. Like, you want to hang out with people, but there's limits, right? <laughs> Like, God's like, there's no boundaries, no boundaries, none, none. Have you ever, like, considered... Is there a boundary in the real life that we're like, okay, but because we know that when we're we're pushing, like, when we're pushing away, when we're not doing what we're supposed to, like, supposed to do, aren't we just, like, breaking this connection? Isn't it just, like, we're, we're ourselves breaking this connection, but this connection doesn't go... I'm not going to talk about that right now. And the reason I'm I'm not going to talk about that right now because there's a whole cycle. The cycle is that God is no longer interested and then then he becomes interested in Rosh Hashanah. We spoke about that, right? And then there's this healing process of Yom Kippur and in between there's the days of Chuv we spoke about. And then God wants to be part of our lives in this kind of obsessive way and comes down to be part of our lives. That, and then we, there has to be some way of dealing with that fact in and of itself. And that's where Sukkot comes in. What you're talking about is, okay, afterwards, there's after Sukkot, then there's uh, the Shemini Tzairus and Simchot Torah, and then eventually we end up like in the middle of the year, and then, then what happens then? And like, things get messed up and complicated. And the answer to that is that's why we have Elul and Rosh Hashanah, and then we start the whole thing over again, because we have to fix things. But okay, I don't want to go there. Yes. Right, exactly. Some connection? The, one Why is it specifically schach as opposed to like, you know, like a concrete slab? Or just anything. Like there's all, lots of sources of so, Yeah, so there's a lot. Here's the thing. In Kabbalah and to a greater and lesser extent in Hasidus, great in the sense of some of the details, but not on all the details. Every aspect of mitzvah has its spiritual significance to it. But if you want to go through all of them, you need a lot more time than we have. So I could talk to you about like why schach has to have certain halacha characteristics and what that all means. We're just going to deal with like the main, because the word schach literally means something that provides shade above. Okay. That's literally what the word means. So that's the core essence. Then what counts as kosher schach? I have a bunch of criteria which are discussed in Kabbalah and in Hasidus. I, I don't want to go there because I, I actually have, we have to figure out how to deal with the gods of you know, lack of boundaries. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't he with us like at that level the whole rest of the year though? Like technically, well, there's God is everywhere. Speak- no, no, no. Okay, so this is important. So there's the idea God is everywhere. God is not everywhere. God is everywhere. But he's not everywhere. Right. So it's like this. When I go to the grocery store, I, I'm clearly in the grocery store, right? But I'm not in the grocery store. What? No, you are. <laughs> You're in the grocery store. I'm right. So am I just my body? No, is that not even the main part of me? No, no. Okay. And within the rest of me, right, my inner self, right, how much of me is in the grocery store? 
enough enough to make sure that I buy the right groceries. Well, <laughs> and then that like maybe. Yeah, like, are you talking like mentally? You could be like thinking about a song or about right. your kids or something. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. So there was there was one time one time there was a, a, a Rabbi Khan who was one of the uh, he was someone who who I don't have time to go into it. He was a very big chassid who who was a teacher of a lot of people. So he's one time for bragging on sukkahs and he tells a, one of the bachram, he says, you know, you, you need to get into the, you need to be in the sukkah. Get into the sukkah. And so bachram looks up and he's like, because oh. sometimes some sukkahs, some parts of it are not really kosher because the schach is not there. And he looks up and he's like, I'm in the sukkah. He says, well, yeah, you have to get in the sukkah. He's like, I'm in the sukkah. And he says, no, you're in the soup. <laughs> Yeah, you're in the soup. You're sitting and eating soup, and where are you? Where are you? Where's your whole mind, your heart, your whole? Where? In, in, you're sitting in the soup. You're eating, you're eating the soup, and your whole mental reality is soup. The fact that it's a sukkah, the fact that Hashem is with you like that, so you're not you're not in that. Okay, so here's the thing: Hashem is present everywhere, but He's not in everything. Mm-hmm. Whole body. Literally, yeah, because Hashem said, I went, all of you. Yeah. All of you. All of you. And what are you supposed to do in the sukkah? Everything. Yes. But why only men and not women then? I'm not going to go into that right now, because if I do that, then I also won't have time to get through. I'm keeping time for the time. We can. Um, I, I do not promise to make anybody feel good, though. Just be clear. Okay. All right. We have other uh, classes. <laughs> okay, I just want to be clear, like if that's what people are expecting. Yes. I feel like if you want it, it won't be uncomfortable. Thank you. Please stop. Please stop. Please stop. That's the whole point of sitting in the sukkah. That's it. The essence of sitting in the sukkah is to be comfortable with the fact that. And how do you become comfortable with this? How do you become comfortable with the fact that Hashem wants to be obsessively involved in every aspect of your life? You just have to decide that, you know, you know, two can play at that game. <laughs> You're going to have a great time of it. I'll have a great time of it. It's just like, okay. In other words, what I want you to understand is like this. There's an idea in Hasidus, I'll use a technical term, which is called makif. Makif means that something is transcendent. Transcendent is a fancy word that means beyond. Beyond means something that's outside of your reach. Okay. See how we did that? Yeah. Hebrew word, fancy word. Normal word, and that's what the normal word means. So what does makif mean? Something that is out of your reach. Okay. Does it mean it doesn't affect you? No, it just means it's out of your reach. Now, there are many ways you can reach things, so there's many different notions of something being makif, because, okay, make sense? Now, one characteristic of makif is that it makes us feel unsettled when things are outside of our reach or beyond us. For instance, we just had an example. Um, the halacha does not require women to sit in the sukkah. Someone asked me a question, yes? Mm-hmm. If I were to say, you know what? We're not going to talk about that. And you can't ask me tomorrow questions and answers either. And that's just the way it is. Um, and that's just the truth. Women are not obligated as well in the sukkah like men are. How does it make you feel? What? No, but the... the, 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 the <laughs> why? I'm jealous. Why? I didn't say that you can't. Just, you're not obligated to. But but why why would it why but I'm not why would it bother you if I'm not gonna explain it? It's like when a it's like you have like two kids and yeah, one of them finds out that the other gets ice cream and you don't. 
And you don't, right. maybe you don't know what ice cream yeah, is, but, but the fact that you... Yeah, but like, who, if, if the one who gave them ice cream is your loving parent who's wise and caring, decided that one gets and one doesn't, like, shouldn't that be enough for you? No. no. Why not? Because you want ice cream. No, that's not why. Because the fact that you know you could get, you know you could get the answer. You want fairness, and you can't reach it. fair about this is only fair in whose mind? The parent. Right. No, the, 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 the I'm a parent. I'm a parent. I, broad, by and large, I can't say always, but I by and large treat my children fairly. They don't think so, but I. Do. Why? They're, first off, they're different. They're different people. They're different ages. They're different genders. They have different issues, right? <laughs> There's all sorts of differences between them, right? So accounting for all the differences, I treat them more or less fairly. But you kind of have to be like older and wiser to see that. So do they see that? No. So does it make sense to them? No. So it's a little bit beyond them? No. So my fairness is makif? Yeah. And, they're desi- and they, don't, they don't get it? And that makes them feel... Uncomfortable. You see how this works? Yeah. When you don't get something, it's beyond you. And especially when it's beyond you and affects you, there's a certain unsettledness about it. There are different ways of handling that unsettledness. Okay? Some can look positive, some can look negative. There's an underlying unease about things that are beyond us, that are affecting us. You said there's still a way to access it, though. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I'm going to get there. But just because you access doesn't mean it's doesn't mean it doesn't co be. Let me let me rather than telling you what I'm going to do, let me explain. Sometimes when something makes you uncomfortable, um, one of the ways of dealing with that is to get very excited and inspired by it. Yes, I will tell you. Give you an example. It's one of the ways that when something is beyond you, you don't really get it. One of the ways that we deal with the unsettledness that that causes in a way that looks more positive is we get very excited about it, mm-hmm. very inspired. Okay, so I'll give you an example. Um, learning, learning in general, learning Torah in particular is hard. And, and the consequence of being hard is that you probably understand very little. And every little bit of understanding is something you have to really fight for and work for. And so there's a level in which that real, real, not even like, like mastery on like historic levels, like, but real mastery in the sense that you can really say like, I really know the Chumash, I really understand Rashi, I really understand Halacha. That can feel like quite beyond you. Whether it's objectively beyond you, it's everything, but it can never really feel beyond you, yes? You know how many people compensate for this? They get really excited about learning. We're learning, learning, we're learning, and we're doing it, we're getting excited about learning. And then when they understand something, what happens? They get really excited that they understood one little thing. Anyone you know that covers over? how little they're actually learning. So it doesn't feel so beyond them. And what happens if they were to calm down and face the fact that like, they understand so little and it seems like such a daunting task? They more. Now they, ha- they have to deal with that discomfort, right? Another way sometimes that we deal with something's feeling beyond us and makes us uncomfortable is that we just decide to ignore it, right? Or deny it. It's very hard to become comfortable to come to some kind of genuine acceptance that some things are beyond me and that's okay. And not things that are beyond me that have no impact on life, things that have tremendous impact on my life and they're beyond me. Are you ever gonna come to a place where you can understand really why God wants to be that involved in your life? No, not gonna happen. 
It's not going to happen. You are never going to be able to explain that. The mitzvah of the sukkah is what's called yeshiva besukkah, to dwell in the sukkah. Now, a dwelling place is a place where you comfortable, you belong. It's an anchor point, right? Even if you're not at home, the fact that you have a home to go back to anchors a person. Simple way to see this is, God forbid, if someone is described as homeless, we don't think, oh, they're missing a thing. It's like a statement about like, something about the fundamental quality of their life. It doesn't mean it's their fault. It just means like, it's, it's not like, oh, they're hungry. There's something deeply um, uprooted about such a person's existence. Okay. So the mitzvah is that you're supposed to treat the sukkah like it's your home. But the schach of the sukkah represents that Hashem wants to be with us in our lives in a way that we cannot fathom, in a way that's really beyond us. And that makes us feel uncomfortable. What's the mitzvah? Uh, no, become. To become comfortable with it. To become comfortable with the fact that, to become comfortable that even though it stays makkah, it stays beyond us. Now, how do you do that? In other words, the Sukkot is seven days, right, where there's actually something that needs to be accomplished, which is that at the end of the seven days, how should we feel? We should feel comfortable, anchored, rooted in the fact that Hashem wants to be in our lives in the most intimate way, in the most integrated way, in every aspect, right? So it no longer feels invasive. It no longer feels overwhelming. Does it mean now we make sense to us? Now we fully understand it? No. So how do you do that? Now, does that sound easier or harder than Yom Kippur? Harder. But I will tell you something. That if you don't have any sense of the closeness of the Shem of Yom Kippur, it becomes impossible, right? Because the whole idea is that Sukkot is that closeness that we had when we went up to, so to speak, his level, when we divested ourselves of our, of our regular human life for a day, something of that sense has to be the guiding principle of dwelling in the sukkah, right? The thing that we're becoming comfortable with is that thing we experienced on Yom Kippur, but in a way that it's taken over every aspect of our life. And so, going back to how did I start the class? That the, the, Kabbalah, thing. the Kabbalah thing, that the cloud of incense becomes the schach, Right? That cloud of incense is right, that place that's so, so withdrawn within Hashem that we have to enter that place. We have to leave our lives. And that's, where, that's the place of forgiveness that we spoke about in the previous class. That same place is the schach. But now we don't have to leave our lives to get to that place. That place is now like, feels a, li- a little bit imposing and overwhelming in our lives. And we have to come to a settled relationship with it. Yes. Because you're leaving behind the parts of you that are not really part of your connection to Hashem in an innate way. So you're just experiencing the obsession in like a... Yeah, it's abstracted. It's right. It's, you're, you're, yeah, you're, 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 on a simple level, you're leaving, back the fact, you're leaving behind the fact that you need to eat and drink. But on a deeper level, you're leaving back the fact that, like, that you're part of the physical world, that you're a human being. Like, all that stuff you kind of like leave behind to get in touch with this deeper thing. And you know it's going to end. And you know, and the reason why it's easier because you know that that's temporary. You're not, you're not, you're not going to stay there. Right? But, but you're not going to stay there, but that closeness to Hashem is supposed to stay and he's going to make sure it comes down whether you like it or not. So, so this is more like Hashem. Like, the is more like Hashem's 
Yom Kippur is us going up to Hashem and Him receiving us, and then Yom Kippur is Hashem. Uh, sorry, Yom Kippur is us going up to Hashem and Him receiving us, and then Sukkot is Hashem coming down to us. So we didn't ask for it. Even if we don't ask for it, and maybe we asked for it, but there's many things you asked for because you didn't know what you were getting into. It's called marriage, for instance. <laughs> And the things you get involved in, that you, had you known what you're getting involved in, you might not have asked for it. But uh, not that they're bad, they're just a lot more demanding and overwhelming than you yeah, originally thought. About, like, obsession with us, like, marriage? Like, what? Is that what you assume it is? No, no. So first off, a real marriage is not like that. Because remember, this is an important thing to know. Unlike Hashem, people are limited. And therefore, every human relationship must have boundaries. And there's actually a discourse, in, 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 a discourse explaining why um, certain relationships are incestuous because the boundaries of certain types of relationships are fundamentally incompatible for human beings. In other words, the structure of, say, the parental relationship and the spousal relationships are not compatible. And so a limited being can't be both. But in our relationship with Hashem, we do have multiple relations that seem to be not compatible. Not because we can handle those differences, but because He can. We kind of have to... Focus on one part at a time. So yeah, real human relationships are always limited in scope. But when we talk about with Hashem, no, they're not limited. And that's, you know, in that realization that he's, he's following you home. <laughs> Literally, like with his whole being. Like he's really into you. What? Why can't it just be cute? It could be cute. <laughs> it can be cute. Why do I have to think of it as like this whole like weird obsession? Like that's so beautiful. It, not that much. It, it's fine. So why, why is this so why are you not fine? One second, one second. One second. One second, one second. I'm not disagreeing with you. I just want to be on the same page. When you walk down the street, when you go home, when you're grocery shopping, when you're, I don't know, getting up in the morning, Are you comfortable with the fact that he's intimately involved, or do you feel like you need like to like prepare yourself and give yourself some space, and then like you know you'll go dive and you'll go do some things, bring him into your life, and then like you did enough of that, and you're gonna go do other stuff. It's not my problem, as if he's. No, but no, but no, but it is your problem because he's not obsessing over you like some sort of like object. (laughs) He's obsessing over you as a person. So if you give him the cold shoulder. He's not very happy about that. You're not an object that he hangs on the wall and says, oh, isn't it? Isn't she cute? No, it's not that. Isn't it also different for women and men? Because I feel like for women, it's like, it's always like this, no? Because we're not, like, obliged to a lot of time on things that men are, like, you know what I mean? Because we feel, like, I mean, there are different explanations why and sort of it's like, like, it's one of the very, like, stretched out explanation, but... Truly, like, people say that, for example, like, what can bring the closest, like, a woman to, to Hashem is having kids, right? Which which doesn't make sense on the Russian level because it's, like, it's it's more distancing yourself because now you're more, like, if your child is crying and you are, like, be, be, like choosing between, like, governing and, like, like, comforting your child, you have to comfort your child because this is the expression of love from Hashem, like, to the ultimate. So it's not, it's not, it's not... Like, I think it's, I so, so I like I'm not focusing so much on the, the fact that you have to do particular mitzvahs. If I was, then maybe you, you would have a good point. It is not uncommon for, say, a mother of small children to be doing everything right and raising her children and everything, yeah? 
and not give Hashem a moment's thought from the time she wakes up until the time she goes to bed. Because? One second, one second, one second, one second, one second. One second. Okay, now. It's not a question now, is the person doing the right thing or the wrong thing? It's, do you feel that Hashem is really part of it and, and, and deeply, intimately invested in it? Yeah. And, and one second, yeah. and one second, and that's not always the case. You know how we know it's not always the case? Because it would affect the little ways in which you do things. Okay? People are always making small little choices that are not necessarily fully conscious, but they're reflective of how they're perceiving their life and the reality at that moment. Okay. For instance, a simple example. So a woman, she's raising kids, and they're hectic, and it's hard, and all that. Okay, fine. And the big rabbi comes over to meet with her husband for something, and he walks into the kitchen, right? What's the likelihood that the mother's going to be a little more conscientious to all the kids... Have their keepers on, all the kids have their, it's just the kids making brachas. Like, what's the like? More likely, right? Yeah? Than regular. Why? Because some. Okay, so now, if this person, this mother, had the sense that Hashem is that deeply invested and had that as part of her psyche, part of her makeup, right? How would that. Would she need the rabbi to come in to have that effect? It's pressure and activity, but like, I'm saying... What's that? So, so, so this is the issue. And this idea you can take on any level. Does, it, it, this issue, and th- this issue is not something where anybody, like, is on... Anybody can easily handle it. Because you, you can always do, like, the easy way out and look at, well, I, you know, if Hashem was with me, I'd be doing X and Y, and I would feel... And I'm doing all those things, right? But then you can look the other way. If I really felt how much Hashem was with me, I really felt how invested Hashem was, I really felt how much Hashem wanted loved me, wanted to be with me in every little detail, right? If that was something I was really comfortable with, what? It would, it would affect things. It doesn't mean I would necessarily be doing different things on the schedule, but the small nuances about the way I'm doing it, the small ways I feel about things. Okay? You know, the, 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 the fact that certain halachic things are, feel like a burden, you do them, of course you can do them, but they feel like a bird. Like all, it manifests in so many different ways. So, now, this is a hard thing to become comfortable with, which is why even the biggest, 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 you know, righteous people, you know, men, women, they also have this issue, okay? This issue, this issue stems from the fact that we are limited beings, fundamentally, living limited lives, dealing with all sorts of stuff, whatever the stuff is, and Hashem wants to be part of that with all of His transcendence and all of His infinity out of an infinite love for us that we aren't really set up to handle. And each person encounters that in their own unique level, in their own unique way, their own unique flavor. And, and the idea of becoming comfortable with that, being able to accept that there's this intensity, there's this, uh, the, that being comfortable with this thing that's beyond me, one of the consequences is it would make you very... To the degree which you become comfortable with it, you start to feel like Judaism is your home on whatever level you need to work on. It's like the consequence of this is that, that there's a lot of times we feel like we're going out of our way for God. We're doing things for God. We're doing things that we're the right thing. We're doing things that we're supposed to. It's not our life. 
And if it, we really became comfortable with how much Hashem wants to be part of us, those things would feel like our life. That's the way we live. Now, sukkah is one step in that process, the basic level of coming to a comfortability with it. There's a second step after which we'll talk about tomorrow. Yes? It, it seems like <clears throat> when you look back at Ulul and Ani Lo Dodi Dodi Li and the 13 petals of the rose, it's, it's all about how, to your point, how deeply Hashem desires a relationship with us and loves us. And in every situation, in every hog, it's just that's the abundance of everything that. Yes, it's a but, relationship, but right? not every not every holiday he does the same thing. So, for instance, in El, he hides the intensity. He's there, but he's like, you know, it's like the the king in the field. I have a different analogy I came up with, which is which is which is the parent at the park. <laughs> the parent at the park, right? The kid, the kid feels a lot more safer in confident because the parents are there. But if the parents like following the kids around every time, like it's like you're there, but you don't want to feel like you want the kid to feel like you're too. Give, the kid, the, give their space. But you being there gives them that kind of sense of they can do stuff. It's not the same thing. You know, then there's like being in the palace of the king. Then there's Hashem like taking us out of the places we can't get out of our own. own. That's, there's different things. There's only one holiday where Hashem's like, I'm just going to be open and honest with you. Like, I want to be involved in everything you do. And with full intensity. And like, there's only time, one time he's like, like that. And that took us. And there's a kind of overwhelmingness to that. It's a positive overwhelming, but it can be very overwhelming. Okay, so this, this, the dwelling, the sitting, it, it, there, there has to be some way to come, become comfortable with that. Come comfortable with what's beyond. So something that, that doesn't, that I can't fully fathom, I can't fully make sense of, but I can become comfortable with it. Yeah. Mm, no. So two things. One, sukkus ends, right? In other words, the idea is that you become comfortable with it during sukkus, um, but at a certain point, there's no more sukkah. And at a certain point, he doesn't like make it that overt and intense. That's one thing. The other thing is, the other thing is, it's not necessarily true. Whenever we talk about you would do, you wouldn't do, um, we have to realize that there's a level of people that's like just their free will, they can decide things, and there's like kind of like a natural thing. So for instance, Aaron um, is not exactly the same point, but it's, it's similar enough. I mean, Aaron, the high priest, um, he was praised in the, in the Torah that he did exactly what he was told to do. Now, which is like a pretty low level of obedience to God, right? You did exactly what you're supposed to do. Now, um, who is the person that you are least likely to obey? exactly what they tell you to do when you're not deciding to be rebellious. A human being. What? You're the person tells you to do something. Not you're not trying to be rebellious. Well, no, a person, a human being. Parents. Another person. There's another person and they tell you to do something and give you very specific instructions. Very specific instructions exactly what they want. Someone don't respect. <laughs> and you're not trying to be rebellious. You're not blowing them off. Child. A child. Why a child? Because they're smaller than what they're saying. Then that's ignorance. Not, not, let's not use ignorance. Not, let's take out the... Uh, ignorance is... Think something that would actually be applicable to someone as righteous as Aaron. So not a desire to be rebellious. He doesn't respect God. Not he's ignorant of what he was supposed to do. 
You have all those things. Like, you should do it. Like, if you're just, you know, disciplined, you just do it. But we'll make it hard for you. They'll love you no matter what. Mm. When you yeah. feel that someone loves you no matter what, and you feel close to them, yeah. it actually becomes very hard. You, there's a certain um, familiarity. There's a certain hamishness that you have. So you imagine, like, 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 if you have a job and you know it's very important and people are counting on you, right? And there's a lot of details you're going to be taken very seriously, right? But, like, when you feel very close to someone, you know that they have this deep love for you and they're, and they're, they'll, 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 they're never going to judge you for that thing, right? It's the, the, the natural instinct to be careful and precise doesn't get triggered. You can, so you have to make a conscious decision. Right? You see what I'm saying? So whenever we talk and says this will lead to that, we were talking about absent the conscious decision. And you can make conscious decision to do anything. When you feel this overwhelming sense of Hashem being part of your life and you're not comfortable with it yet, you're not necessarily going to do what Hashem wants. You're going to be wrapped up in like how to manage your own discomfort. Like I said, you might get very excited. You might like, you might uh, run away. Like, it doesn't lead itself to, if you somehow manage to get, achieve a level of comfort with it, then that can end up being motivation to like, do everything properly and things like that. But when something makes you feel uncomfortable, like I didn't know a student, and whatever, he's in my Gemara class, he had bad experiences previously with the Gemara, and so he's very uncomfortable in Gemara class. He said, it's nothing to do with me. I said, well, I still have something to do with me. But like, you know, something happens in Gemara class, and all of a sudden, he like, can't learn because he's uncomfortable. And like, that, I mean, and you know, so how do you deal? How do you, how does we deal with that to make him comfortable, without changing the thing? Right? You don't want to get rid of the thing. In this case, the gemara. So if Hashem wants to be with us in a way that, if we were to feel it, if we were to be in touch with it, that He's expressing it, is that beyond our ability to fathom? Is that overwhelming? How do you become comfortable with that? A hundred percent. So the mitzvah on sukkah is to dwell in the sukkah. Now you can't dwell in the sukkah unless you have. A sukkah. So you're saying is spiritually, you can't ask me to go dwell in the sukkah unless they have a sukkah. Okay? And I'll go even further. You can't have a sukkah, spiritually speaking, spiritually, unless you have the incense of Yom Kippur. See how this is working? In other words, if you want to feel that the sukkah is a sukkah in the spiritual sense, that's the byproduct of Yom Kippur. Just like physically, you have to build the sukkah to have it. The spiritual way you build the sukkah is having an, an, an authentic Yom Kippur. To whatever degree you have an authentic Yom Kippur, that will be, your, that will be the sukkah, that will be the place that in your, in, your, in your soul, in your psyche, where Hashem's infinite desire to come down and be with you will, will, will come into your experience if you remain sensitive to that, if you remain in touch with that, if you don't like, you know. But then that can become very overwhelming. It starts to really starts to sink in, like what's going on here? And so the spiritual idea of dwelling in the sukkah is to find a way to become comfortable with that. We haven't really talked about how you become comfortable with it. You said it, and I, I wanted to get back to it. To make yourself want it. To make yourself want it. Now, here's the thing. How do you make yourself want it? Um, by choosing it. By choosing it. You don't think about it. You just... Right, this is the thing. Mm -hmm. There are certain things that all you can do is to just dive in. Right? So, um, sukkah is, is a time of celebrating. If, you would, if, if it's a time to celebrate, how do you start celebrating? Do you sit there and can talk yourself into celebrating? Does that work? No, you just do it. You just do it. You just like, you know, decide that from now on I'm just like, I'm, it, I'm, I'm just going to become part of this. And not, 
not engage too much reflecting. So how does a person actually achieve in the spiritual sense the sitting in the sukkah? They make a decision. They make a decision to just rejoice in the fact, not to understand it, not to rationalize it, not to philosophize about it, to rejoice in the fact that Hashem wants to be with me in every little thing I do. And I'm just going to rejoice in that fact. And the more you can just wildly rejoice in that fact, and that's a decision, doesn't happen to you, you have to decide, that brings out the part of you that becomes, that's comfortable with it. And so seven days of Sukkot to seven days to rejoice in the fact that Hashem wants to be with us. And that's, a, that's actually much harder to do. It is much easier to be introspective and contrite and repentant and, 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 and in touch with deeper truths than to just rejoice in the fact of anything, much less something this profound. But that's, that's the spiritual equivalent of dwelling in the sukkah. And the more you try to justify your rejoicing to yourself, the less successful you will be. <laughs> as as you, everyone knows from any other kind of rejoicing and celebrating, right? That's why some people think that what they should do is get drunk. Now, I will tell you, getting drunk is a lousy way to do it because what are you doing? You're right. You're, you're, you're bypassing the part of you that's not celebrating. I'll be very clear with you. Hasidim do not add, Hasidim do not have an in principle problem with. This is right. I'm saying is an abstract idea. Don't take this in, in, in any way. Hasidim do not have an in principle objection to people drinking and experiencing joy or whatever in the service of God. It's not, an, it's not like in principle it's fake. But and here's the big but. It's understood that it's a bypass. And so if the goal is that I, in my whole life, should rejoice and I can't bring myself to that without drinking, then what does that mean? It means the part of me that needs to be rejoicing isn't rejoicing and I've just bypassed that part so the part of me which would anyway rejoice is rejoicing. Are you supposed to bypass our minds? No. You're not supposed to bypass your mind. It's the opposite. You're supposed to bring the mind to a place where it can let go. It's very different. So which is why... Which is why, which is why, I'm not getting into like pe- actually people drinking, but if one is going to justify their drinking with spirituality, um, then they're making a very big mistake. Be- I'm not saying it's not legitimate at all, but you first have to get to the place where, you're, where your sober mind is rejoicing. Your sober mind is one to let go and rejoice. That that choice affects there. And then to maybe, maybe move things a little beyond that, there might be some room to discuss, you know, a place of alcohol. But if, but, if, but, if, but if a person is sitting there, like, without that, then no. Then it's, um, and in general, like, it's, one should always be suspicious about using alcohol for spiritual reasons. Suspicious doesn't mean it's completely out of bounds, but it's very, very suspicious. Um, no, the main thing is to actually, like, genuinely rejoice, which is mostly primarily a decision. It'll end on a, on a story, although it's a Simchas Torah story, but it, it nonetheless illustrates this idea that, that rejoicing is a decision to be made rather than something that has to happen to you. And it's that decision to rejoice that's the dwelling of the sukkah spiritually, the becoming comfortable with this overwhelming involvement of Hashem in our lives that is deep love for us. You just choose to celebrate. But, but the, it doesn't come from your mind. It doesn't come from it comes. No, 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 no. And there's a lot of Hasidus explaining how learning about it doesn't help. No, what the Chassidim would do before sukkahs is they learn about how much learning about it doesn't help. 
to, to get their mind to be in a place where it's more comfortable just letting go with the decision to just rejoice. See what I'm doing? I'm teaching you how it doesn't work. <laughs> yes, there's something, there's something uh, quite interesting about this, right? Um, okay, there's a, there's a lot to... The story goes, there was, a, there was a chassid who had a very sick child. We're running the class of dual cousin. He had a very, very sick child. And the doctors had given up hope, and he traveled to the fourth Chabad Rebbe, the Marash, and he wanted a blessing, and he arrived, and there was sukkahs, and there was no private audiences, and he pleaded with the, you know, whoever was running the show, the Gaba, and um, he, you know, it's a life and death situation, and the agreed and set up a private meeting, and he went to the Rebbe Marash, and he said his child is dying, and he wants a bracha, and Rebbe Marash basically indicated no blessings forthcoming, and um, the doctors, you know, the doctors diagnosed him to die, and that's what's going to happen, and there's nothing to, there's nothing to do about it. And he was obviously very broken. And um, so now it's like, you know, it's sukkahs, everyone's celebrating, everyone's rejoicing, and he's there just sitting there crying and broken and, like, you know, distraught. Um, and a few days go by, and he really hasn't, like, brought himself to, like, pick himself up and go back home. And he realizes at a certain point that it's actually Simchas Torah by now and um, realizes that everybody else is celebrating and, you know, at the end of the day what we're celebrating in Simchas Torah is also true to him and just because his, you know, child is dying doesn't mean that Simchas Torah is not something to celebrate and he decides to join the celebrations, like, but wholeheartedly, like, he just makes a decision that he's going to just throw himself into it. Anyway, afterwards, he has another audience with the, with the Rebbe. I don't remember if he initiated or the other, or the other way around. I think, that, I think the Rebbe initiated. And he told, gave him a bracha, this child's going to get better. And then he told him that the joy breaks through boundaries. And so previously, there was no way to, to help your child. But now, because you were in a state of joy, everything is different. And you can talk about the power of joy. But the reason I brought the story is because how did he enter the state of joy? He chose it. It's a place deeper than reason. If you're reasoning your way into it and justifying it to yourself, you're inhibiting it. And again, using alcohol or other kinds of things is not, not the way to go about it. It's about getting yourself to a point you can say, this is worth celebrating. Just because I don't, don't understand doesn't mean it's not worth celebrating. In fact, there's, trying to understand is not going to ever make it, make, it, make it make sense enough to celebrate. So I'm just going to decide to celebrate it because it speaks to my soul. And that's, when a person does that and rejoices and, and engages in festivities for seven days in the sukkah, um, then they're in a different place. And then we can talk about the final step of really taking Hashem with us into our lives, which is going to be tomorrow we talk about Shemini Tzaris. Right. I will see you tomorrow. Thank oh, you. no, I won't. Yeah, yeah, yeah tomorrow. tomorrow. I'm not confused. Tomorrow's... Wednesday. Oh, no, I'm not doing Simchas Torah. And I feel bad. I made this whole thing that was... Okay, fine. I'll, I, I realize right now, tomorrow's Q&A, and we don't have another class. Okay, so I should tell you something about Simchas Torah. Yeah. Okay. Because, uh, okay. Um, in a nutshell. In a nutshell. Um, the idea of Shmi Yitzharis, which is the day after Sukkot, is that... Um, there are th- let, me, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me put it like this there are things in life that a person gets and makes sense to them right? resonates there are things in life that are beyond them 
Is there anything else, something that's part of your life, something you experience, but it's not something you get makes sense to you, but it's also not something that's beyond you. Is there a third category? Think about that for a minute. Stuff that you really get, there's stuff that's beyond you. Is there a third category? Yeah, the stuff that... Not the stuff that you're not aware of, it doesn't matter. No, in the middle. Well, that just means that you're, so you get it to some degree. I mean, is there a third fundamental, like a third actual category? You're not getting it. It's not beyond you. It's, it's who you are. Shemini Yetzirah is where the point of connection is that it shifts from how Hashem wants to be part of our lives, which is Sukkot, how much we want to connect to Hashem, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, to something much, much, much deeper, which is, this is who we are. And can you ever escape yourself? Whoa. That's a whole different thing. You know, it's after trying to go up to God and after Hashem's coming back to us, there's this shift where this is who we are. Now, I'm going to give you like a... a th- this could be fleshed out, but I'm not. I'm just giving you the simple metaphor. Pesach is the time of the birth of the Jewish people. Have you heard this idea before? Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. No one asks the obvious question. What has to happen before birth? Conception. That's right. One of the Jewish people conceived. Shemini Atzeres. Mm-hmm. Shemini Atzeres <laughs> is the conception of the Jewish people. What does that mean? What does that mean? All right. A child being conceived is a point at which that the father and the mother are not actually two separate people. And literally the child is one person who is both of the father and right? the idea that we are both our own person and one with Hashem, that reality comes into being in a way that, that, that actually begins Shemini Yetzirah. Ultimately, there's a whole idea of Pesach. I'm not going to go through this. So the idea is that we're not, it's a whole different thing. It's not there's Hashem and how I feel about him or how he feels about me. It's that there's actually some deeper level where I cannot be me without him and he cannot be him without me. And that's the idea that, that we can't leave each other. Yeah, I, that, I, you're mixing the actual conceiving a child with the analogy. The analogy is that just like a child is conceived, there's actually a real unification of being that's occurring. And that's how a child actually comes in, because the child really is a unification of the parents. So the idea that we cannot be us without Hashem, and Hashem can't, so to speak, be himself without us, when does that become a reality? Shemini What? When he says That's right. That's right. And that then actually takes on and changes the history of the world and how everything happens on Pesach, right? That's so why the is it not nine There's a whole discussion in Kabbalah, actually. Really? Yes. Or yes. yes, there's a discussion. There's a discussion in Kabbalah about... about <laughs> every... Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a discussion in, there's a, there's, there's a discussion in Kabbalah about, about um, lengths of pregnancies and what different numbers of pregnancies mean. Um, so officially, well, yeah, so for instance, so what we, we, what we would say is like, if you would put it Kabbalistically, you would say it's like this, is that the upper spheres play the role of the father, 
and the lower sphere of Malchus plays the role of the mother, and then they unify, and the essence of God becomes manifest as the Jewish soul, if you want to put it, yeah. And that becomes who we are. So, so yeah, but like that's, anyway, but the point is to be able to get to that place, we need to be comfortable with God being, you know, obsessed with us in our physical human lives. It is weird. It is weird. By the way, like when I forbend with my friends on Sukkot, like, and you start taking this stuff seriously, it's like a serious thing to talk about. Like, you know, really, like, you know, like, really, like, 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 he wants to be part of all my life. My life is, you know, not all of it, you know, it's like. We naturally, like, decide to put up our own boundaries. So that's part of, part of the joy, joy breaks boundaries. That's the idea. You just choose to celebrate it, those boundaries. That, and, and again, I, I don't mean to say to make, I don't mean to, I, I don't mean to say this to make it sound like heavy. I just mean, the rejoy, rejoicing on Sukkot is actually a deeper and more difficult thing to do than Yom Kippur. Right, because it's bringing down. Now, it also is true that the degree to which you go up on Yom Kippur makes it that much easier to bring, to, you know, so you can't sit in a sukkah without a sukkah kind of thing. Um, I'm not saying this to make it heavy. I just think that, you know, you don't want to be like, oh, we finished Yom Kippur, now we can just like relax for the second half of Tishrei because it's all easy stuff. Like, no, no, that's when the real work begins. But it's a different kind of work. It's a work... It's not relaxing. It's... Dancing is not relaxing. It's not relaxing. It's very positive. It's entirely joyous. It's positive. Yom Kippur is an interesting mix. There's a, it's you know, there's 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 it's, it's there's a bitter sweetness about Yom Kippur. All right. So you're not going up or down. Simcha star. There's no up. There's no down. There's there's no separation between us. He. He can't be him without us. We can't be us without him. And so we're, we're in it together. That's just the end of it. It's almost like because we had, we went up, or because we went up and because he came down, we don't need yep. either. It's like this. Yep. yep.